Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of State of the Art. I'm your host, Andrew Herman. And if this is your first time here, let me tell you a little bit about what we're doing. We're talking about art technology and the intersection between them. But mostly, we want to talk about why you should care about this stuff. I've been on both sides of this coin as a startup founder, an engineer, a creative, and I'm just fascinated by the world where art and technology overlap. So I'll be talking to artists, collectors, CEOs, and founders, anybody who has any perspective on this world I want to talk to. This week, we're actually taking a break from our monthly theme of new museums examining selfie palaces because we had the awesome opportunity to bring you a live panel from the Untitled Art Fair, which opens today on the Embarcadero in San Francisco. If you're around, please check that out. The theme of the panel is viewing art in the digital age. Obviously, this is a topic that you all listening to State of the Art are familiar with. It's something we're talking about all the time, but it's something that the art world and art fairs like Untitled really continue to grapple with. So we thought it was really important to carry on the conversation there. Our panelists brought three very different points of view to the conversation. We had artist Lynn Hirschman Leeson, artist and academic Dorothy Santos, an educator and head of interpretive media at SFMOMA, Erica Gangsi. If you listen to the show, she's been on a couple times. We love Erica. Thank you so much for doing this panel with us. Um, if you want a little bit more background on this amazing lineup of female panelists, you can check out our show notes on iTunes. These guest speakers offered a really comprehensive and insightful overview of how we think technology will become integrated into the traditional art world, how they view our current visual culture in the U.S. versus the rest of the world, and of course, how technology can bring people into art venues and spaces. That's something we're always caring about, right? And what I really love about these discussions um, is basically the back and forth and engagement between the panelists as they discuss their points of view. So I hope you will you'll check it out, and I think you'll like it too. And uh, oh yeah, you, you may recognize the moderator's voice. It's not me this week. But Ethan, former host and founder of State of the Art, obviously, if you've been listening for a long time, you're no stranger to Ethan's voice. He does an awesome job at these panels. So uh, please check it out. On to the panel. Hello. Good evening, everyone. Hi. Thank you so much for coming out on this Friday evening down to the Battery. My name is Amanda Schmidt. I'm the Director of Programming and Development of Untitled Art. Um... We are very happy to be here tonight, so I want to give a thanks to Matt Bernstein and The Battery for inviting Untitled Art to host our second panel here. Um, we hosted a panel earlier in November on the topic of artists, books, and editions that was moderated by Juana Barrio, um, and it was recorded for the Untitled Art podcast, and for those of you who don't know, We've been running a radio station from each edition of the fair in Miami Beach and San Francisco for the last five years, and we've recently rebranded our radio program as a podcast. So we are in the iTunes Store, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts, and I encourage you to tune in if you are a podcast listener. Um, and tonight is the first time that we have invited a guest podcast to take over the Untitled Art Podcast. Um, just a few announcements before I dive further into the introductions. Um, first, just a reminder that since we're at the Battery, um, just to refrain from photography or videography during the panel and during your time here. Um, and also a reminder that this panel is perfectly timed because we are opening the third edition of Untitled Art next week. 
We are moving to this neighborhood, roughly. We're going to be opening at Pier 35 with a VIP preview on Thursday, January 17th, and we stay open through Sunday, January 20th. Um, everyone who's here tonight, you've either been invited because you're a Battery member or you are a VIP guest of Untitled. So just a reminder, um, if uh, you don't already have your VIP pass, um, as a Battery member, you do have access to visit the fair, and that all information that you need is on the Battery uh, web page, and you may also check in at the VIP desk if you're having any trouble finding your pass to get into the fair. So we hope to see you all there. Raise a hand if you're going to come to Untitled next week. Oh, yeah. Okay. I know I did notice a few hands that didn't go up. Um, so I'm very, very excited to invite, uh, to introduce our panelists tonight. So as I mentioned, this is our first guest podcast. And what we've done is we have invited Ethan Appleby of the State of the Art podcast to host, host tonight's discussion. Ethan Appleby is the host and, uh, host and founder of the State of, State of the Art podcast, where he interviews leaders at the forefront of technology's role in the art world. The podcast features in-depth conversations with guests ranging from digital artists to curators and founders of online marketplaces. State of the Art Podcast has led state-of-the-art conversations with guests including artists, scientists, government officials, aeronautical engineers, neuroestheticians. Yeah. I was wondering if I could pronounce that right. Um, teachers, curators, coders, gamers, and game changers. So tonight we've invited Ethan to lead a discussion on a very simple but also very top, uh, very profound topic, um, viewing art in the digital age. And I thought this would be a really interesting topic to explore because what Ethan is doing is sort of looking at how, um, looking at the interface between art and technology and how technology affects the way that we view and experience art. And what Untitled does is sort of in the opposite direction. We're putting on a brick-and-mortar show in a physical space in very specific locations, encouraging people to come down and to see the art in person, to sort of get off of the Internet, to get off of their phones, and actually come to the fair, view the art, and have it one-to-one -one in person conversation with the artist or with the dealer that's representing their work. So I thought this was a really vital conversation to um, sort of look at where these two worlds intersect. Um, as technology continues to evolve and permeate nearly every aspect of human life, it's only natural that our markets and culture evolve alongside it, ushering in new concepts and questions. The art world Argue, arguably moving at a slower pace than other markets, is a delicate ecosystem grappling with what the digital age means for the arts, from redefining what art is and how our viewers consume it, to who and how one profits from it. So tonight, Ethan has invited three fabulous panelists that I'm very happy to have here with us tonight. Um, all the way on the end is Erica Gangzi. She is the head of interpretive media at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. In this role, she leads a team of multimedia storytellers to create award-winning digital resources such as audio tours, video interviews with artists, in-museum interpretive gallery spaces, games, 
and the podcast, Raw Material. Erica is passionate about games and is the founder of the museum's Play SF MoMA initiative, which presents pop-up arcades, game jams, lectures, workshops, and an artist or a designer in residence series. Next, we have Dorothy Santos. Did I miss something? No. Okay. A writer, curator, and researcher whose academic interests include digital art, computational media, and biotechnology. She was born and raised in San Francisco and holds degrees in philosophy, psychology, as well as visual and critical studies. And she is currently pursuing a PhD in film and digital media at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Um, I'd also like to mention we're missing one panelist, um, Claudia Schmuckley, who is the curator in charge of contemporary art and programming at the Fine Arts Museum of San Francisco, who is unable to make it tonight. Um, but she has worked closely with our final panelist, who I will soon introduce, the inimitable, or again, knowing your work, that's probably not the right word, unimitatable, <laughs> imitatable <laughs> is indeed the right word, um, the unforgettable Lynn Hirschman Leeson. An artist, an artist and filmmaker whose work has received international acclaim for over five decades. She is recognized for her innovative work investigating issues that are now recognized as key to the workings of society, the relationship between humans and technology, identity, surveillance, and the use of media as a tool of empowerment against censorship and political repression. She is considered one of the most influential media artists and has made pioneering contributions in photography, video, film, performance, installation, and interactive as well as net-based media art. And finally, her work is represented by Untitled Art Exhibiting Gallery, Anglin Gilbert, who will be at the fair next week. And I am... There will also be work by Lynn on view. So another incentive to come down to Untitled. Um, I hope you enjoyed tonight's discussion. Thank you again for coming down. If you have questions at the end about how to get to Untitled, I'll be around. Um, so come and talk to me. I'd be happy to meet you. And without further ado, I will pass it on to you, Ethan. Thank you to all of the panelists, and thank you so much for leading this conversation tonight. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Um, well, first of all, between the flu going around and it being a Friday, I'm glad to see that all of you made it out. Um, really excited to have you here. This is my, um, I think my my third or fourth time hosting a panel here, but it is uh, so it's great to see the familiar faces, and I know that means that the questions at the end are going to be very tough. So good luck to all of you for <laughs> for handling those. Um, it's actually my first time though doing it in this room, and I and I I'm excited about that because I love the intimacy of this room. Um, and, and so it's, it's, it's fun to be in here. Um, but also, you know, I've, as mentioned, I've done, I host State of the Art. We've done 65 episodes. And so people always come to me and ask questions about what's going on. And I am very much a student of the art world and, um, and very fortunate, you know, as all of you are, um, and very fortunate to have three incredible teachers here today who are going to, um, give us a lot of insight into what's going on. So for that, I, I'm very excited. Um, to kick this off, I mean, the idea of this, the, the panel is, is viewing art in the digital age. And 
as Amanda mentioned in the intro, there's this notion uh, that the art world might be slower to adapt and to integrate uh, with technology than, say, other industries and markets. Why do you think that is? Do you agree with that premise? And, and, and why or why not? I, I think some of them are, but not everybody. And I think that, uh, that there's an embedded mentality towards a system that has existed for many, many, uh, decades that, uh, that's based on a different kind of thinking, uh, than digital art, uh, creates. And a lot of it is about value systems and building value systems. And that takes a while. It takes a while to be able to validate it and to write about it and to create the culture for it that allows it to be accessible in a gal gallery, uh, for an audience. So it's, it's rare, but, um, uh, that it happens right away, but it's something that builds up, like the art itself, like the media itself. Yeah. I mean, I'd say, I think another thing is, um, museums are sort of the opposite of the move fast and break things mentality. Museums are, you know, slow down and preserve things. Yeah. And I, so I think that a lot of the, you know, I'm also getting some weird echo of feedback, maybe people. Just a heads up. Okay, I can, I can, I can work through it. Um, uh, so I think that, you know, there is, you know, there are ways of doing things. It takes a long time for new art forms to make their way into, uh, visual art or gallery culture. I mean, think about the many decades that there were separate galleries for photography before photography was recognized as an art form in, its own right. And I think the sort of preservationist impulse of museums is one answer. And then on the other side, I think digital media is, and I'm sure you, know, then you can speak to this more than I could, that digital media is harder to commodify when you think about a commercial gallery context. You know, in a lot of cases, it's unclear what you're buying or what you're selling. Is it a digital file? Is it a videotape? Is it a document? You know, Yes, what's exciting. You know, because you're able to do that, you, you don't have to rely on a history of, of commodification, but you could invent exactly how that, uh, that thing or, uh, ephemeral, uh, ephemeral moment is preserved or, or codified. I think that's a big part of that too is, you know, just to kind of piggyback off of what, um, you know, Erica and Lynn uh, are talking about is also the expansion of art itself, like the definition of it. I think people, when they go out and oftentimes being, you know, this being some aspiring, you know, researcher, scholar in film and digital media, I'm also looking at computational media. And it's interesting because I'm seeing a lot of these and I, I'm, I will only be academic for like 30 seconds. I'm seeing, no, and I'm seeing a lot of these programs pop up across the nation, even internationally in computational media, where it's a lot of the engineers and the programmers, they want to actually make art and they don't fit into typical or they are atypical of an engineering, um, like their practice doesn't involve that, making something functional. And I think when people think of technology, they automatically think this thing has to serve me in X, Y, Z way versus it being something to experience and to see and to really ponder. So. I mean, it can be. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, but I, limiting in what sense do you mean the... Well, we got a lot of free programs when we were trying to uh, sure. to, to make our AI piece, for mm -hmm. instance, in the 90s and do, do other things. Mm -hmm. And we weren't thinking about ways to make, to come out of, to make it commercially viable. We were thinking about pushing the media as far as, as we could. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So. I think what I'm 
gamification also works both ways because on the one hand you have you know, people thinking of technology as purely functional mm-hmm. and then at the same time you have you know, local tech companies working to incorporate artists into their office culture and into their program by hiring them to paint murals on the walls and you know artists are creative inventive outside the box thinkers and innovators and improvisers who can do a lot more than decorate your office mm-hmm. you know and so i think that that um you know that perception does kind of cut both ways and you know the idea i think that you could in experiment with technology without needing to have a, a product or a deliverable right. at the end is still really new mm-hmm. and is it new well i mean i think i mean and look at these i mean it's been going on for about 100 years yeah <laughs> It's true, yeah, but I guess with digital media in particular, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, let's go back quickly to, to photography. I mean, when photography first was introduced, I mean, I would say that the art world very much looked at them as scientists and technologists, right? There were even then different galleries that popped up for photography only, and it took a while for photography to be recognized as an art form. I mean, do you have any insight or thoughts on like why that was and, and how you know that plays into the conversation that we're having? I mean, arguably, I mean, you're bringing up photography, but look what photography did to painting. And I'm just going to just, again, briefly touch upon painting because that's not the focus, but it's, it, it kind of rippled out. You know, I think other, I think people in other disciplines had to really be forced to think about how to push their own mediums and, but it, you know, when you want to say something. No, go ahead. Oh, okay. No, but with photography, I think a lot of reason why people kind of, you know, thought about it as this, it, it, it's this new technology, you know, it's this new thing that only, Certain people maybe know how to function. Maybe certain people knew how shutter speed and, you know, how, and even like the thing that comes to mind with photography is that also brings in this notion of surveillance where we think of the reason why Kodak developed the boost, the boost flash was for surveillance purposes. Mm -hmm. So when we think about photography, there is just inherently a notion of surveillance associated with it. You're not necessarily going to, you know, affix that some kind of like sublime, I don't mean that in the, German romanticist way either, but it's like you're 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 thinking of it in in a different like technical way versus something that you experience for some kind of um you know experience per se or sublime experience you know for and it's a threat too it's, it's a yeah. threat to a particular system exactly. that's been embedded right and people don't want to change it because they've invested in it yeah, yeah. totally but I mean it's interesting because you think about um like photography really changed the functional purpose of painting and drawing as yeah. you said you know because it used to be in order to be a scientist you had to also be an illustrator if mm-hmm. you were an explorer you had to bring a painter along mm-hmm. with you because there was no other way to document what you were right. Seeing and when photography was invented, it changed mm-hmm. all of that. So you no longer had to have a functional purpose mm-hmm. for painting or drawing, which results in the sort of wonderful identity crisis, which gives you phobism mm-hmm. and impressionism, exactly. all the great things that come after. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, but then you think about, you know, 21st century painting, you know, painting's been going on, you know, and that is, I mean, it's interesting when you think about like, this is viewing art in the digital age. And I think about the distinction between the digital age as opposed to, technology as such and all the technologies that came before Mm -hmm. the digital age you know often we conflate the term technology with the term digital but really you know painting was a technology charcoal was a technology you know the cave paintings were reliant on a technology Mm -hmm. it's just not a digital technology Lynn, you mentioned value system, and you look a lot at the intera- the interaction, the intersection between humans and technology in a sense of like surveillance or science. Um, you know, 
Could you elaborate on that a little bit and, and talk about why um, artists or the art world might feel threatened by technology? Um, well, because it, it, it's a new medium, and I, uh, it's not really a new medium, but it's a medium of our time. Mm-hmm. And I think when you start to see what what's going on and what really speaks resonantly to the perspective and perceptive perceptions of our, our society through the medium of our time, mm-hmm. uh, it's different from what has been in the, in the past. And as I say, it's never been, very often hasn't been written about, there hasn't been the value system established for it, and it uh, it creates a different edge for seeing, uh, seeing the past. So it takes a while in order to... Um, to find its way in, into culture and into language. May I riff off of that? Please. We're here. We're all here <laughs> no, to riff we're off all of each okay. other. No, but I think also in relationship to value systems, you also have to consider with new media and digital art, it has a very short genealogy in relationship to the rest of like what is pegged as or perceived as deemed as art. Meaning it's probably a good five de- 50 years, right? Mm-hmm. And even when we think of things like the mother of all demos, when people were like the Stanford lab was in Palo Alto and from here, I forgot if it was Goldberg, but these engineers kind of creating, you know, the, these, these ways of communicating, uh, pre-internet. And so then again, you see it happening. And it, again, it's these different associations. And mind you, and Eric and I were talking about this and I'm sure Lynn can attest to this. Like we're, we're I'll speak for myself, but I'm a huge fan of like science fiction movies and speculative fiction. I think those are the, those are the types of things we associate, you know, your mind kind of things. What is the possibility of this particular technology? How is it going to go against um, or challenge the contours of an already existing value system I hold around the arts? And that's a, that's a really, you know, that that kind of uh, you know, no pun intended, kind of colors your experience when you go see digital art because a lot of people. I'm not trying to convince people as a writer and a researcher and artist myself, like I'm not trying to convince people like digital art's the greatest thing and you need to do X. What I'm trying to do is, you know, how do you see this? What do you see? How do you experience it? Do you know the constellation of artists and people or even the political and cultural climate that has made this thing? And what what is its value to you? That's what I feel, you know, I think is kind of, you know, rubbing up against what um, and kind of aligned with what Lynn is talking about. But science fiction, in a way, is speculative reality. Oh, totally, you know? yeah. So, <laughs> so sure. sci-fi is really sci-true if you wait long yeah. enough. It's so <laughs> true. That's yeah. very true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's like the, you know, what Ursula Le Guin called the dark mirror that mm-hmm. we hold up to our own reality or what you know, we now experience through the show Black Mirror. Mm-hmm. You know, that a lot of those technologies that are presented in that show come to be. But I did also just want to say one other thing about the development of the value system, which is I think that there's um, with every new technology, there's a nascent expressive potential. And I think that um, it takes people a while to figure out just what the ins and outs of it are. You know, like when moving pictures were first presented by Edward Moybridge at World's Fairs, he'd present locomotives and people would actually dive out of the way because they were terrified because they saw a moving train coming towards them. Man, Ray. What no? What's more bridge? I think more bridge was the train was man ray. The train was man ray. Okay, well I thought that was more bridge for some reason. Whatever. Motion motion study photographers of the late nineteenth century. Um, But uh, you know the same thing is true now with like uh, augmented reality, virtual reality, mixed reality. That people are so caught up in just the immersive potential of the spectacle that we haven't actually started 
we haven't actually created a refined critical vocabulary for what those experiences could provide. Or maybe that's maybe that's a provocation. Maybe we have, or maybe we're starting to. But and I no. think there's also a fear of loss, like kind mm -hmm. of like a phantom limb uh, mm -hmm. of our memory of, of uh, that if we have something new, it means we're going to have to give up something that already exists. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, just to your point, Eric. I mean, I for. When I was working on my master's thesis, I actually looked at Misha Cardenas's work, and she was doing virtual reality when there was, I mean, I think Oculus Rift was still kind of, and even the HTC Vive wasn't even really thought of yet, I guess maybe. But, you know, this was over 10 years ago where she developed with stereoscopic headgear you know, delving into second life, looking at well, what could virtual reality tell me about and perform also in dichotomously in different spaces, like in, in front of an audience, but also simultaneously in second life. And I think one of the things that she was trying to do is explore her own identity as a queer trans Latina. And thinking about that, there actually have been, you know, scholars that look at this, that have been looking at this for, for you know, for, you know, good maybe 20 years, but it's the application. I think so, yes, to a certain extent, I agree, but I also slightly disagree that there hasn't been, there hasn't been that provocation because I think it's just the, the language is still developing. Yeah. Yeah. And as soon as it's there, it changes. It, cha it changes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we have updates to our phone, like, every day. Yeah. So, Yeah. How do, how do you see, um, I, I like the phantom limb and the idea, like, you know, to get something, we have to give something up. And I mean, where analogy in art, you know, I mean, there's blockchain, VR, you mentioned augmented reality. And there's also your work that explores, you know, what's going on with surveillance. And well, I think it goes beyond that. I think, I think the new surveillance, the new, the more, most pervasive, most diabolical surveillance is internal and biological. Mm -hmm. So I think that art is, is going into both artificial reality and artificial intelligence as, as well as, as, uh, biological conversions and, and editing system, the creation of new life, and really the transposition of life itself mm -hmm. in, in uh, new kinds of ways that will reconform re the world in a profound, all living things and the world in ways that we've never had before. I think it's really spectacular uh, what's going on now and that, that art is uh, mimicking simultaneously these developments as they happen. Me? Well, recently I had an eight-room exhibition, which which was the recreation of a genetics lab in a museum in Switzerland. I took all of the elements from the exhibition and converted it into, into DNA. And so the final room was looking through a lab door and just seeing the DNA this of, of the 2,000 square feet that you just walked through. And, you know, of course, CRISPR, which is already becoming a, a little bit obsolete. But you know, gene editing systems that will that will uh, reconform life forms, and, and right now there's no restriction on what you could do. There's no FDA for for CRISPR editing, so you could take anything whatsoever and make make it into a new living system. And I think to piggyback off of what Lynn is talking about, and another example is uh, Heather Dewey Hagford's work, where she, you know, during her a residency at IBM in 2013. She, you know, collected the detritus on Brooklyn streets and basically did DNA phenotyping on this detritus and developed, 
uh, ways of 3D modeling what these potential strangers would look like. So that is insidious and nefarious to a certain extent. I mean, people in other countries are doing this. Another example of what Lynn is talking about, but is more real life, is in Kuwait and around the same time, you know, um, which this has kind of been, a, they've, it's more a battle than anything else, is that the government was trying to do DNA banking once you arrive um, on, in the country. Uh, and again, it's always this moral imperative of like DNA collection and, and cellular material being that it's a new type of media. Mm-hmm. Um, I myself, and prior to returning to academia, I was in biotech for almost 14 years. I know I look really young, but I, <laughs> I, um, I, I was in biotech. So yeah. that's actually a very specific interest yeah, so for if me. If you're in biotech, you look young. I, you know, hey, <laughs> I say it's yeah, what, what kind of augmentations just, have you? <laughs> I just say it's water. It's, I just hydrate and moisturize. That's it. Right. But, oh yeah, that's right. it. Yeah, yeah, right. But I mean, it's just an example, and you know, and again, of course, Lynn's work being, you know, obviously inspirational uh, to my own scholarship. But I think that's you know, there's a lot of different artists looking at you know cellular genetic material as media in and of itself. Yeah, and what it can do. Yeah. I mean, I worked with Novartis last uh, last year, and we created an antibody uh, that is that. Um, I mean, together we made this thing that became an antibody that is now in China, uh, helping in the research for cancer. So, so, and I think it's an artwork. I mean, I got the whole, you know, I have photographs of the, of, of the crystals forming. They're really beautiful. And to me, you know, it, it's really a new dynamic way of, of, uh, involving the media of our time mm-hmm. into new forms and communications. Well, and another example is um, Phil Ross, local yeah. artist, who you know, he was growing sculptures out of mushrooms and using mushrooms as a sculptural material, and he learned so much about how to manipulate fungal material that he actually started his own business, which is uh, sustainable building materials and vegan leathers made out of fungus. Mm-hmm. And so and basically, you know, the fact that so much R&D can be done in the service of creative expression that can then be applied in other there's that group that, that used mushrooms as body suits for when you die. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 <laughs> they have to buy caskets to yeah. use body, mushroom body suit. Yeah. That's so brilliant. I feel like that's a yeah. topic for a whole other panel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. It's called the infinity suit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, how, we, could, we could dive here. We could go here. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, technology is used for expressive means, but also for interpretive yeah. means. Yeah. Erica, do you want to highlight some thoughts or ideas that you have on on how technology is being used on that side of the spectrum? Yeah, well, I mean, I think one thing that is incredibly important to us when you know we're developing interpretive resources at SFMOMA is to think of the technology as melting away. That if you notice the platform, if you if you notice the vehicle, you're not actually reaching the destination. And technology is a vehicle; it's not actually where we're trying to get people to. We're trying to get people to an insight. And so a lot of the time we'll think about the technology that we're using as you know, very, very light touch and oftentimes single purpose technologies. You know, you have an app that does audio tours and only does audio tours. We have a texting program where you can just text the SF MoMA collection, send me purple and it'll send you something purple. You know, just very simple things that hook as much as possible into activities that people are already participating in on their phones. So you're not a sort of Swiss army knife, not a lot of bells and whistles. And also you know, a problem that I see a lot in my field is basically the equivalent of having a hammer and looking for a nail. You know, oh, I have this great tool. You know, there's this new mixed reality app. 
what problem can I solve with this mixed reality app? And that is sort of the backwards way to go about it. What you want to do is think, what problems am I trying to solve and what technologies can I use for those problems? Because it could be that a deck of cards that you hand out to visitors that issue simple conversational prompts and provocations is as useful as a $75,000 app. And so $75,000 is a lot of money to museums, but just like clarifying. American museums, yeah. But that, um, you know, a lot of the time, the simplest tool to solve the problem might be something, you know, the, the most effective tool to solve the problem might also be the simplest. And so approaching it in that way so that the technology is a, a mediation and not the star of the show. You know, the art is the star of the show. Unless the art's technology. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. In which case we take work it. with glitches? No. No. But, you know, when the art is technology, oftentimes we take a big step back because if you're in an immersive media installation, the last thing you want is an audio stop. Mm -hmm. It's sort of figuring out what that boundary area is and how we can be as unobtrusive as possible while still sort of providing a pathway or a bridge between the visitor and the artist. Because, you know, we're just, we're just the middlemen. Yeah. The, um, you know, I love, for example, I mean, the, the hammer and the nail is a great, you know, is a good uh, analogy. I mean, you know, I think of like scooters here, which people are very passionate about. Like, why are they out there? But um, <laughs> with the texting, for example, that came the that came about from really someone solving a need that they had, which was, you know, the museum has so many works of art, like 95% aren't being shown. And yeah. So this was a great way to show that. And it went viral and it was so simple. And then, you know, the app that you have is, you know, award winning and the audio, I mean, why why do you think that is and what are examples of you said light touch of sort of heavy touch or where you know it's the hammer not the nail going first uh, well one thing that we've been we've sort of been availing ourselves of the fact that there's so much technology in the bay area you know for the entire history of my department we've had great partnerships with local companies and startups and innovators and entrepreneurs and hackers and whatnot and we've been running a series of mixed reality exper experiments in the galleries where it's actually mobile mixed reality. So using, in one case, bespoke devices, and in the other case, an app that's downloadable to people's own phones to try to figure out sort of what the visitor tolerance is and what the institutional tolerance is to a visually mediated experience within a visual art museum. And to me, visual augmented reality is still an example of heavy touch technology and still in a lot of cases a hammer looking for a nail and i think they're great examples the detroit institute of art has a augmented reality app where they've got a mummy and you can actually look inside the mummy with the augmented reality program and see the x-ray but in the visual art context i think visual augmentation is I'm suspicious of it, and I have yet to see truly effective use cases for visual mixed reality in that context, which is why, as far as augmenting reality for visitors, we stick with audio so that they can keep their eyes up and on the artwork. Because when you're standing in front of a work of art, that's a sacred experience. And all I want is for people to connect more deeply with that work of art and not have graphics. You know, yeah. That said, a lot of visitors are going into the galleries taking photos and then applying their own, you know, Snapchat filters or 
Uh, speaking of Snapchat and AR, I love, I love the, I don't know if you saw, uh, Damien Hirst did a partnership with Snapchat. And if you went down mm-hmm. to Chrissy Field, you could see one of, you know, his famous dogs, you know, on the field there. Jeff Coons. Sorry, Jeff Coons. Yeah. Yes. The same, and, like, and, like, same ice cream, different flavor. Yeah. And so, someone came down. <laughs> But and and they did they did AR graffiti where they graffiti the augmented reality dog which I thought was pretty funny. Yeah. So let me trouble that yeah. and be controversial. <laughs> Please yes. no. So, let's get let's spice so, it up a little so bit. So number one, I think I think of someone like John Craig Freeman who's been doing political AR for a long time, for over a decade, and I think a lot of people think you know how this technology is like what is it going to tell me? What new thing can it show me? But I mean, he's done everything from the floatsome and all the kind of the floating garbage that's happening and addressing climate change to, you know, um, uh, front, uh, you know, border, uh, he did a border piece. Um, oh my gosh, I'm like, the name is slipping away from me, but, uh, he did it along the border where he collected all of the, the markers of the, of the migrants who tried to pass the border. And he's done work like that. He's also more, more recently did, uh, you know, things we for, um, Uh, this project called Things We Forget, where he's working with neuroscientists on like, what if one day, again, very speculative, but as Lynn said, you know, it's like sci true. But um, what if we forget something and we can just pop it up on AR? You know, it's like, these are the types of things that he's playing around with that are charged politically and culturally with, well, how do we look at things like memory? The second thing I want to trouble also is like with the whole Jeff Koons, you know, AR piece is that that's also kind of, um, you know, again, I'll be controversial and say that there's like this... uh, you know, appropriation of like urban culture that kind of can happen with AR and how do you combat things like that? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's different people using it. I mean, even Bay Area based artist Jenny O'Dell, who used um, in her project called Bureau of Suspended Objects, where she looks at you, you had to, you had to use AR to see the provenance of all this junk, this technological debris and junk and detritus that she collected um, taking on this kind of role as a natural scientist does and finding the birth, the manufacturing, the provenance of these different objects. And you, there was no way to show all that information other than AR. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I feel like there are a few handful of projects that do show the successes of it or can show the potentiality of it. But I agree with the sense of like this heavy handedness that Eric is talking about in relationship to, you know, AR and VR and all these technologies. They're still, I mean, they require the body that there's, there's no doubt about it that I can see where you're coming from when you talk about the heavy hand, you know. Um. Oh, I, was, I was just going to say that Orrin Katz, who has yeah. a, mm-hmm. a, a a lab called Symbiotica in mm-hmm. Australia, um, was saying that that they can now kind of suppress particular memories mm-hmm. and retrieve them back mm-hmm. at will. Mm-hmm. And, and there's so much going on. You Basically, know. eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. Yeah. <laughs> you wait long enough and every movie becomes true. Yeah, yeah pretty much. <laughs> Lynn, you, you made this comment uh, to Erica that, you know, there's museums don't have a lot of money here. Well, you said, especially in the U.S. Yes. Uh, let's talk about, you know, how would you describe our visual culture, maybe specifically in, in the U.S.? and 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 why do you think perhaps there isn't as much of an appetite um, for uh, for arts here, or that why museums don't have the funding that they do abroad? Well, I 
I mean, it's a complicated question. You know, it's a question. We've got time. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I think inherently it's a cultural need. And particular cultures outside the United States absolutely need art. And they're brought up with, um, with, with it being a, a nourishment and a sustenance and a way of, of, of life that isn't prevalent in the United States. So it's, uh, I, I think that, um, uh, that you find a different emphasis of towards towards collecting art, towards revering art, towards respecting artists, towards supporting artists. Um, you you can go into any small village in Europe, and if there's a museum, they support their own artists in it. You don't find that here. I mean, what is the support in the United States for artists itself, and much less for experimentation? Mm-hmm. I mean, there really is none. Uh, you know that 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 really is the demise of a culture if you're not respecting the creative uh, uh, capabilities of of what we have as our as our product and our resource. Well, I think also it is okay if I add, yeah. to, but I think also inherent in American culture is, and I'll just say it is. Um, Are you be controversial? Is, no, possibly. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just like an inherent exceptionalism and or pragmatism too where it's not necessarily it's about either getting things done and it's or it's about being the best and what does that mean it means innovating it means you know disrupting you know to a certain extent where i don't know if that and that's kind of can be contentious especially i mean i'm born and raised in san francisco so i think that i've seen definitely a lot of the changes and you know trying to be a writer and an artist and a researcher here is in new media and digital art trust me i've been called an apologist so many times and i and i take sometimes i i grapple with this notion of no i actually care very deeply about the arts but i'm just looking at a different medium i'm looking at a different experience in the way that people are using it but it's like that's the contentious nature of it too that i just kind of wanted to say that kind of under that sometimes undermines you know what um what some new media and digital artists are doing and or or you know or in these kind of new realms that people are finding hard to define. But yet we are in the Bay Area, and the Bay Area has changed the world. Yeah, no, exactly. And, so it's, yeah. Yeah, and I think that the art that comes out of here, I mean, for instance, I mean, for, for myself, speaking for myself, I could not have been doing yeah. what I did and was able to develop if there weren't out-of-work programmers. No, for sure. No. <laughs> yeah, but I, but I think it's, no, and I agree with that, but I think a lot of it, too, is, the, is you know, you, you dared to do that, and that's something that I think a lot of people, especially women in the arts, you know, appreciate and admire. Yeah. Well, well you have nothing to lose. <laughs> it's true. I just, I want to add one thing, which is, um, you know, obviously the lack of, government level support for mm. the arts and that the arts aren't seen as a vital part of public infrastructure yeah. Yeah. in the United States. Mm-hmm. And so as a result, I think that creative work isn't valued. And I've said this so many times, uh, but you know, there are really two classes of innovators in San Francisco, one of whom is fairly compensated for their work and one of whom is expected to work in exchange for exposure. And, um, you know, you wouldn't ask your dentist to fill a cavity in exchange for exposure. And so the fact that artists aren't paid fairly according to the standards of the local economy is hugely problematic. And part of it is because the value of artwork and creative work is not fully recognized in in the United States as a whole in the way that it is in Europe and places where cultural institutions are adequately funded by the state and seen as a vital part of 
public life and a vital way to ensure community. I mean, I was in a, at a contemporary art museum outside of Copenhagen recently where they were saying that they, um, they have a huge refugee population coming into the area and they see public arts programming as, and they called it an inoculation or a vaccination against cultural and social problems. They understand that by building a shared social understanding that you know, the kind of shared social understanding or vocabulary that can come from experiencing artworks together, you can actually build a more cohesive community from people who are coming from all over the world and have experienced extraordinary trauma. And so that is an amazing and inspiring perspective to me and something that I think we could, in the U.S., use to learn from. And there's no resentment for being taxed for the arts. Experimentation, public television, not just in Europe, but in every, every other place in the world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Even uh, not, not, uh, uh, not very wealthy countries mm -hmm. also feel that art is really a vital part of, mm -hmm. of their existence. Why well, am, um, well, it's interesting. I, I was, I saw a, a panel here, I think it was about four months ago on, on public art and the state of public art. And I think San Francisco has, you know, one of the largest budgets for public art. Uh, there's, there's a lot that's going on Treasure Island down at, at in SFO. Um, but yet you don't, you know, see the sort of culture around it and people really embracing it as much. And some say that's because, you know, there isn't like an artist community here. But you point out that you couldn't do what you did without being here. Yeah, but I was isolated, <laughs> except for the programmers. <laughs> so, okay, well, I mean, like, let's just go down. I mean, why is that? I mean, I also there's also the sense that San Francisco and the Bay Area is this sort of like this untapped or this such high potential of of collectors, right? Because there's so much money here, but yet no one has been able to break into. I mean, Untitled's here to do that, but you know why? I mean. Like, I just, I want to continue to explore, I mean, why do you think that is? Like, what is it? I mean, you said that it's a need, you know, abroad, but it's not a need here. You know, do you have any more thoughts on why that is? And, and then my follow-up question is going to be like, how do we change it? How do we make it a need? That's a big question. <laughs> uh, I think you, I think it comes from support and exposure. Yeah. And, uh, being able to see the value of the work. I mean, if, if, if you're doing this new kinds of work, it has to be seen. It has to be written about. You have to really have a vital, uh, community of writers mm -hmm. and of, um, of, of, of visitors to the work itself. It can't just be done here and exported. So, uh, part of, part of the, um, the battle, I think, is to create the places and the commitment and the language for this work to be uh, created and explored and I would, collected. I would refer you to Rennie Pritikin's Prescription for a Healthy Art Scene. What which, is it? Uh, it's, a, it's a document that he produced, I think, I don't remember when he produced it. A while ago. A while ago. Mm -hmm. I, I'm going to say the 90s. But yeah. the, the, what did it yeah. say? Um, it, it says it's a whole list. There's like 31 bullets, so I'm not going to remember all of them, but it's everything that you just said. You know, there need to be spaces. There need to be audiences. There need to be writers and critics. There need to be curators. There need to be collectors. It's, it's and, an yeah, ecosystem. It's mm -hmm. an ecosystem. Truly. And right now, I think that, you know, because of things, and basically I think of uh, artists as like an endangered species because their habitat is being 
compromised. You know, there's a, there's no affordable studio space. You know, galleries are <coughs> shutting down. You know, institutions can't afford to keep curators on payroll. And so basically all of the things that create a healthy ecosystem for the arts. But I also, I think it's interesting because one of the reasons why I moved here from New York 15 years ago is because the creative community seemed to me and proved to be more, you know, community oriented and sort of staunchly anti-capitalist. But I've always sort of wondered whether that was, you know, whether you're staunchly anti-capitalist because you don't have a choice, you know, <laughs> you're like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not interested in selling my work, you know. <laughs> but I but more of a logistical question that came up, I, 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 I was a part of a convening on open source software for the arts last year. And one of the things that actually came up amongst the artists and, and, the, engin and the engineers or developers or in the open source community um, co contributors was this, this idea of backwards compatibility, which is when you think mm -hmm. about collectors and, you know, I, not to be on the, you know, to because I, I, I know we're talking a little bit more about, you know, economics right now, or I am, but it's thinking through, and that's a very intentional thing that the artist also has to think about along with the gallery space that they're showing at a museum, maybe. Um, they have to think, you know, do I want this to be shown in a particular way in the future? Because I think that's the, that's also the differentiation that when, you know, the whole, you know, title of the panel is viewing art in the digital age. So one of the things that people have to think about is that. And, and that's a very intentional, you know, decision that an artist makes or not. And it's, you know, it kind of relates to the question that you asked to an extent. It's a, and it's, it's an experience that has to be had at the moment before it changes. And so, you know, meaning like before the software updates, before we have to change out all the hardware. And I think that's the reason why I'm talking about this notion of backwards compatibility. Like, can this be recreated? I know at SFMOMA there was um, someone, I believe Mark Heller was someone who headed up the whole, you know, even, even, um, you know, uh, you know, recreating some of Lynn's work is like, I'm just using Lynn, Lynn as an example here, but you know, uh, it's not say, it's not to say that the artist has to think about that, but it's one of the conversations no, that you people, really, you really do. I and mean, we migrate yeah. our work every three years. Right. And then we keep everything and it becomes almost like an archaeological dig when you go back and look at this, this old equipment that's five years old. Exactly. It's completely obsolete. But I think that relates to, you know, this idea of, you know, collection versus archive is how do we want the aesthetics of the piece to be presented later on? I think it's know? up to the artist to determine that. Yeah, we, sure. we make uh, we make very uh, uh, cohesive manuals, sometimes 150 pages, Ooh, which, by the way, Frank Lloyd Wright did also for, yeah. you know, for, for his work, which Klaus Oldberg did for his work, mm -hmm. you know, to really think ahead to, to <coughs> what could happen to this yeah. and how it could be reproduced. Right. It, oh, and it just—it's Mark Keller and Martina Heidvogel. I just oh, to yeah. Okay, no. Get the, no, get the names in there to, yeah. before we <laughs> move on. Yeah. Uh, well, I wasn't going to move on yet, but okay. I was going to say, you know, it's a, people often compare, you know, music to art, and and the example of of you know how people get into music, you know, it's not that they go from sort of you know pop music to them being you know loving Bach in, in classical music, you know. It, uh, the co-host of State of the Art, you know, Erica, you guys talked about how it's like someone goes from like pop to, to classic pop to classic rock to jazz to, you know, and it takes that sort of A to B to C, you know, not just A to Z. And so thinking about that and like what can we learn perhaps from, from Europe or other, other countries to uh, kind of come up with this idea of how do we create that ecosystem? How do we create steps A, B, C, D to get us to where we, we have, you know, the appreciation that they do? 
All right, everybody, we wanted to take a quick break to say, hey, we hope you're loving the show and we want to know more about who you are and what you want to hear. It helps us continue to make great content that you love and it helps us attract advertisers so we can get paid to continue to make awesome content for you. Please go to sodapodcast.com slash survey to help us out. That's S-O-T-A podcast.com slash survey. Another amazing way we support the show is through our Patreon page. We've actually worked down the street for Patreon for the last six years and seen them go from an idea to a platform that has helped creators make over $300 million. The thing we know from being in the art business is that selling art is hard, in part because it can be above someone's budget, or as a podcaster, you need 10,000 listeners before getting any of the ad agencies to talk to you. But that's not even always the best way to monetize. Patreon is a great way for you to connect with your fans and invite them to become members. So for any creators interested in learning more, you can actually apply to speak to a Patreon launch specialist by heading to patreon.com slash soda slash apply. That's patreon.com slash S-O-T-A slash apply. Thanks for checking us out and back to the show. Okay, so, so moving on, I mean, on, you know, I asked a very tough question, which you did an excellent job responding to and, and as you mentioned the, the 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 point is, is viewing art in the digital age so you know how do we use technology um to bring people into art venues and into art spaces to help them both experience and educate them i mean i can say what i'm doing at sf moma is our games program yeah. Yeah, where we're doing, we're partnering with local indie game designers. We're partnering with local mixed reality companies in order to run, you know, game jams, play tests, experimental design series and, um, pop up arcades. Um, you know, sort of understanding that there's this medium that many people are engaging with on a daily basis that is not necessarily being you know, reflected in the museum in other ways. And um, we've had uh, mixed reality event over the summer where we developed two experiences, one of which was just a collaborative virtual sculpture and the other of which was based on the work of Magritte. And what was interesting to me is that we had a bunch of people come to the playtest for the Magritte experience and then buy tickets and go up into the galleries and actually look at the Magritte exhibition who otherwise wouldn't have um, gone and seen it. And so I think that there are a lot of people who pass by an institution like SFMOMA on their way to work who don't necessarily think that that institution has anything for them. Mm -hmm. And so I think of using technology as basically like a honey trap to get them in the door so that they can start to understand. But then, of course, trying to use technology in a way that's thoughtful and doesn't you know, pose distractions, dangers to the artwork, dangers to other visitors. I think you also have to use the tools of your time, uh, the potential of your time, the, uh, the, the strain of, of conceptual thinking to create, uh, vital and, uh, uh, radical and work. And I think that brings people into a museum. And we mm -hmm. had our show, uh, one show I had in Berlin, another one in, in Basel, and there were 36,000 people a day going to see the shows, uh, because they hadn't seen anything like that before. And I think that that's something that has to be explored. It's just pushing the edges and, uh, and educate, educating people just from the questions that you're asking about the time that they're living in, using the tools of the time that they're living in. Mm -hmm. No, I absolutely agree with that. I, I mean, I think it's aside from that, it also has to be 
you have to be willing to deal with the uncomfortable as well. I mean, speaking of games and using game mechanics, I think of an artist that I wrote about Angela Washko's work, The Game, The Game, where she researched pickup artists' language and the lexicon that they use when picking up women. And she created a game out of that based off of this research that she did. And what was really um, jarring for a lot of people was they, they didn't want to play the game. I had to, I had to play the game because I wrote about it. But it, there, it, it's when you think about even something that you seem and you, you think is harmless, but having to, you know, you know, or even Caroline Cinder's work, you know, where she, she you know, talks about uh, in her most recent work, Feminist Data Set, where she did research for the past three years on hate speech and uh, what uh, misogynist language actually looks like on the Internet. So you have to confront what I what I feel will bring people to different institutions or what ought to is is the, the very things that challenge your notions of what you think is nor normalized. And I feel like, you know, those are the kind of examples that I wanted to bring up. But even with Lynn's work, it's, you know, this concept of, again, genetic cellular material being media because it is a media. It can be used. And so those are the types of things that I feel would, you know, I hope bring people and are compelling enough reasons to bring people to these different experiences. Well, I mean, I, I love the analogy of the honeypot. You know, <laughs> if you walk by and it brings you in, you know, if you're on your way to work, um, you know, and Lynn, you mentioned, you know, creating work that's so provocative that people want to come and 36,000 people saw it. A know, day. A day. <laughs> I was at Basel and traffic is so bad that like I, I had trouble getting to all the things I wanted to see. And so thinking about that, I mean, even when you're in Miami, it's hard to see things, let alone, you know, you're not at work in, in San Francisco walking by the MoMA to get caught by the honeypot. I mean, how else is technology changing the way people or how do you see it in the next five years changing the way people can view art in the digital age from perhaps like, I mean, the idea of viewing it from afar? Um, and technology, you know, do you think it will replace, you know, seeing art in person? You mentioned what a sacred experience it was seeing a piece. So what's that relate? How do you see technology changing the way we view art? Um, that becomes the platform for it. You don't need really museums for many of the, the artworks. Mm -hmm. You don't need to experience them there. That's right there, right in the work itself. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? You can do it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Lynn. <laughs> well, no, I think, I mean, it's kind of, it's very similar to, you know, again, I brought up Angela's work where you can, there's a lot of playable media online that you can find through your apps. But I think one of the generative things that can happen when you go to a physical space, uh, whether it's a gallery or an institution such as the SFMOMA, um, is to be around people, to see different reactions, to get, to have this kind of emotive you know, uh, response, not just from yourself, but from another individual. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, but again, as Lynn was talking about, I do agree. There are certain, there are certain considerations that need to be made because you also have disabled patrons who, you know, can't always make it out to institutions or museums. And that's another reason why I think, you know, viewing, viewing artwork in the digital age can, can kind of, um, reach a broader audience in that sense. Or at least that's one of the things or, that I want to say. you know, say to. like Martine Sims work oh, yeah. for AI work that you right. could do, you know, by texting on your phone. Yeah. The, uh, the work I have at SF MoMA, mm -hmm. Agent Ruby is the most visited 
artwork in mm-hmm. the entire, entire collection because you could see it online. You could talk to it online. Speaking. And it's been been um, creating conversations for 14 years. In fact, when Rudolph collected it, there's mm-hmm. something like 80,000 tons mm-hmm. of responses, which then became a collective portrait mm-hmm. of how people around the world were viewing themselves. By the way, when that was launched, I totally remember having my Hewlett Packard heavy desktop <laughs> in my bedroom and talking to Agent Ruby. Okay. And I well, remember you still can. Well, so and, no, and I know we still can, but I remember that. It that's what introduced me to your work. Mm-hmm. I think that's actually a really interesting, like Agent Ruby is a really interesting example because I don't think that the optimal presentation for Agent Ruby is in a gallery. You know, I think that it's better to experience it, you know, at home and be able to actually do a deep dive that you're never going to do when you're inside an institution and you're with a friend and their feet are tired and they want to go to the coffee bar and, you know, the museum's closing in 15 minutes and there's a guard there and you're just trying to get into a conversation with, you know, with Agent Ruby and really get deep. I mean, that's something that happens better, you know, in your, in your pajamas at three in the morning. Just sorry, asking for a friend, do you want to just explain what Agent Ruby is? (laughs) I actually know. Agent Ruby, we, I, uh, I started this project, uh, in 1995, 1995 to make a, uh, to make a, a character online that you could talk to and interact with or shortly after the internet became accessible. And I worked online, like gathering 18 programmers to finally create the artificial intelligence markup language to create this, this AI piece. I had to do a film called Technolust in order to kind of convince people mm-hmm. <laughs> I could do the AI piece because it was yeah. nobody would understand it. But anyway, it's it's an artificial intelligent chatbot. It was the first one that was ever done. Tilda Swinton's in it and you can talk to her online by going to agentruby.net mm-hmm. and asking her questions and she'll answer in a, in very provocative ways. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Great. Like I said, I was asking for a friend. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you want to see yeah, but I think that, you know, I mean, it's interesting. It's the, you know, I think about games, you know, video games and computer games inside a museum context. I think the same thing is true. And I think one of the reasons why institutions have a hard time exhibiting video games is because it's not really, you know, on average, when we've done visitor tracking, it's, you know, horrifyingly low number of seconds that a visitor spends in front of a work of art if they even choose to pause in front of a work of art. It's something like 10 seconds. And you can't really get, <coughs> A chatbot in 10 seconds. You can't really get a video game in 10 seconds. These are deep dive experiences. And so I think that in the case of a lot of new media and especially participatory media, it's not even that the museum is, you know, obsolete. It's that the museum isn't the optimal venue for it. You know, I will say that, you know, on, on behalf of the analog art making community, you know, the V.S. Selman's show cannot be experienced through digital reproduction. You have to be in front of those paintings because she is channeling an intense amount of energy through the pigment onto the canvas or through the pencil onto the paper. And you need to be there and experience the grain. And that is a very, you know, old fashioned, but still very true way of experiencing work of art. So I think there is a sort of bifurcation when you're thinking about you know you think about people as digital natives and digital immigrants you can almost think about artworks the same way that there are digitally native artworks and then there are artworks that make more sense 
in person. Mm-hmm. Let me be difficult for a second. Go ahead. <laughs> because I say this because I, I was in my pajamas experiencing Agent Lynn's work, mm-hmm. Agent Ruby. And I remember typing in different answers and getting, you know, Agent Ruby to talk to me. And I remember when the, I saw the installation at SFMOMA. Huh. And that was a really different experience for me because I have to say, I was actually looking for my answers. I stood there and I was like, where? I know what I said. I know what I said. <laughs> the ones that got cut and, out. Yeah. And I was probably, yeah. probably, probably <laughs> got the ones. I, I probably entered something not very nice or something or whatever, trying to ex- explore the, the kind of contours of Agent Ruby. But I think the point or the, 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 what I'm trying to trouble here is that that's, this is one of the examples that I thought to myself, Oh, how are they going to, display that? How are they going to install that? And I remember thinking to myself, something very similar, but having a really different experience, being in front of the work, seeing it in that iteration and manifestation and wondering, wow, this is not, there's something very sacred that happened in that moment for me, because I experienced it when it came out online for the first time. And so that's one of the things that I wanted to say, arguably, yeah. of like seeing the different ways that that digital can kind of be translated into the physical uh, is very fascinating. And, and, you know, I'm open to that. But I do agree yeah. with your point about it. And I think you know. it's a wonderful problem to keep hammering at right. and trying to solve. Right. I have so much respect for the yeah. people. You know, every couple of years, a new exhibition of video games comes out. Sure. I have so yeah. much respect for the people who are fighting that fight and so much you know we we the museum required learning to love you more which is another online project Mm -hmm. um and you know seeing the different ways that that project has been displayed over time for those of you who don't know there was a harrow fletcher and miranda july it was an assignment-based website and it was an online (laughs) community where people would do assignments that had been posted and then send their response back uh, or post their response online and basically making their own art within the creative constraints from the website. And, you know, it's really fun to see the different ways that that has been installed over time. You know, how do you display a website in a, in a museum? I mean, Dorothy, I, I like your example of how you you, know, you first played with Agent Ruby in mm-hmm. your underwear, and then you went. Okay, I didn't say underwear. Pajamas. Oh, I said pajamas. Correction. Correction. So, a little comic relief. But what it, what it, it, it reminded me of. <laughs> okay, cal- calm down, calm down. It reminded me of of, of the music industry, and when, and when the radio first came out, they were very threatened because they thought that no one is ever going to attend a live event again because yeah. you can now hear your favorite music on the radio, and actually, it had quite the opposite effect. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, your example of you you experienced it online, and then you went you know, to see it live and you had a very different experience with it. Just like seeing a concert live is a very different experience than, than having a live. I mean, playing off of that and, and the idea of the, the honey pot and the hammer and the nail, <laughs> what, what, I mean, how is technology, how do you, do you think that technology like VR or AR, you know, or Instagram or others can be this kind of larger honey pot that gets people to get intrigued, to get interested, to then be more likely to perhaps see it in, in you know, not replacing seeing it in person, but be, make it more likely for you to go see it in person. And I think our survival depends on it, you know, honestly, like um, that, you know, using Instagram, you know, figuring out how to use Snapchat, because the thing is museums will develop sophisticated tools to engage visitors with the artwork and you know, tons of, I mean, Hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars have been put into museum apps since mobile technology Why don't they became put a thing. It into 
collecting art, right? <laughs> but because what and they're trying really to do disturbing. is figure out now. Look, is asking the hard questions. Yeah, <laughs> they're trying to figure out how to engage the people with the art once they're in. Yeah, but there'd be more door. art there to be engaged, which would yeah. automatically bring more people in. But anyway, so, so anyway, museum mobile technology is this huge industry and the relative merits of which can totally be debated. But, you know, more often what we find is that visitors are doing what they always do on their phones. They're just doing it at a museum and visitors aren't actually really interested in downloading a museum app unless it's the very traditional audio tour. <laughs> set. And so I think a lot of the time what you need to do is become savvy with the technologies that people are already using and figure out how to insert your message into those technologies, which is why something like send me send me was the texting chat bot or texting bot that worked really well. Um, or, you know, museums that have snap custom Snapchat filters. So, so you're surveying your visitors and kind of manipulating what, what they have, what they come in there with. Um, uh, survey, surveying, not surveilling. You know, like actually but asking. Surveillance too, because if you're looking at what they're doing and yeah. then trying to disrupt that. Oh, no, actually interviewing people though. Like, which I guess an, you know, an interviewer survey is a form of surveillance. So yeah. Surveilling your vis visitors. I think a colleague of mine, Kier Winesmith, said, we want to go right up to creepy and then we want to take one step back. That's How sort do of you know? <laughs> I don't, I personally don't know. <laughs> But I, but I think to circle back around to, cause it, cause I think social media and surveillance and kind of big data are very contentious points, mm -hmm. especially in the art world. But I will say this. I yeah. oftentimes hear people say, I hate Instagram. I hate Twitter. I hate social media. But then they're posting that very statement and picture of what they said hate on these platforms. And I think that's like in and of itself very kind of the, the cyclical nature of how social media works. There's tons of artwork actually that are being produced. I mean, when you asked that question, one of the things I thought about was Aunt Shalmina, who just recently published the book Memes to Movement. And, you know, she talks about the translation between the physical or the digital and the physical and how these different kind of social movements are rooted in these, the, like what starts off uh, in, in the digital realm and how that, that these are actually the very things that get people outside. And so the fear more is kind of the, the, again, the contentious nature of being surveyed. You know, that's mm -hmm. kind of, uh, if you know and you're willing, and you give consent, which all of us, okay, I should say a majority of us do, that that's kind of something that I think institution and artists has to like really combat and really intentionally think through when they're having, when they're engaging in their own practice and dissemination of their work. I think it's like Stockholm syndrome. <laughs> well, no, I mean, yeah, to a certain extent, yeah. You know, it, you know, it's like you kind of are a willing, you're a willing captor to these different, you know, and you platforms. get addicted to it, and you, yeah, and then absolutely. You get a trauma, then you get cultural trauma from it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, but it's, it's. I mean, trust me, my summer reading list was Jaren, Jaren Lanier's work, How to Delete or What Ten Arguments to Delete My Social Media Accounts Now. Like, I think that's what it's called, but you know, um, but there are different things that these books also tell, or these kind of the literature tells us is that how do you how do you mo moderate how do you modulate you know how do you how do you kind of work within a multimodal capacity so that you can really engage with these artworks I think that's kind of also the question at hand uh, for this panel but even just with the audience and abroad when we're thinking about how you experience digital artwork I, I always judge a good panel by when you teed up like the next four panels that are going to be done. So I've been selfish and I've been asking all the questions. Are there any questions that you would like to ask each other or to ask the audience? 
we could hear what they have to say. Oh, yeah. Well, I was going to go yeah. there next. <laughs> okay, fine. There are none. So why don't we go? Well, no, I'm in between the oh. three of us. I want to ask a question. Please. Yes. Yeah. 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 Deal with a lot of companies, and I always find it stunning how disinterested, very wealthy innovators are in anything other than spending 24/7 in front of technology, which by design is not all that collaborative. So you're working with technology, and yet you know this whole idea of how do you create an economic? You know, artists can't make money. It's so capricious, it's amazing, and they can. Well, my point is that we people don't engage with art. You have tech, you're using technology to create art, but how do you get people to actually engage in the fact that it is art and actually to support it? You know, as opposed to Europe, I was finding stunning to me how disinterested people are. I don't have art, and they just don't pay any attention to anything other than making money. When they get older, I think. It changes a bit, so but that's such so, a great loss. I mean, it is. Really, I find really it stunning. Sad. Right? I think so, but you're dealing with technology. I mean, I'm sort of interested in your point of view. I've always wanted things on my walls, whether it's digital or otherwise, and I just find I won't use names. They're just not interesting. Well, I don't know. I, I trust the millennials, and I, I think that the younger younger people uh, are are changing how. I mean, this is the meme for them. That's what they're born, the digital natives, that they're born into this. And I think things will change through that. I, I do. Hey, guys. So where is the limit? You know, you guys were talking a lot about biological aspects. I know DARPA's playing around with gene drives, the idea that you can modify the entire genetics of a species. You could encode art into that. Uh, you could take NSA data sets and you could make art out of that. So, What was the second part? The second one was you could take an NSA data set and you could turn that yeah. into art. So where, as, as we have these new capabilities, how do you set the limits? Why do um, you have to have a limit? I mean, art, art doesn't have a limit. I mean, if it's true, if, it, if it's truly radical in exploring your time, you don't have to have a frame around it. I mean, it bleeds out into the culture on its own. I think I would trust Lynn with an NSA data set before I would trust the NSA with an NSA data set. <laughs> <laughs> That's saying a lot. Example, too, is like I think a lot of people, there was a controversial piece done by Revisel Cohen and Turvan Balin and where they created a piece. The piece was called Sterile, where they worked with a... Dr. Yamada in Japan to create synthetic fish, goldfish that had no reproductive systems. So essentially these 45 fish were considered art objects and then when they died off, they died off. No one technically wanted to collect them. And if they had a desire to, there is it's fatalistic. Videotape. It's they could videotape, yeah. But it's there's already a fatalism to that. You know that the you know that this goldfish that you collect is going to die. And so when we think about contours and limits, I, again, very similarly, I too would trust Lynn with a NASA or NSA data set, but it's, it's, why have those limits? You know, um, it may be controversial, but I think it's also testing kind of the boundaries and limits of what already exists and saying, you know, bringing up these, these ethos and ethics. How do we develop that? How do we develop that within these different ecosystems? And artists are the ones to do that. I think it's really interesting. You think about, you know, that we, we have ethical boundaries that we're willing to impose 
on an art museum. It was fascinating to see what happened with the Art in China exhibition, which started at the Guggenheim and is now at SF MoMA, shameless plug. Um, you know, in terms of the, you know, the. Without, without the controversial piece. Without the controversial piece, exactly. The, contra the controversial pieces were pulled from the exhibition and, you know, ethical standards are being applied to art exhibits where, you know, actually, you know, critical discussions. They're being, they're being whitewashed. Right? They're being, exactly, they're being whitewashed. Yeah. But, you know, we, you know, we as a society are uh, imposing standards that we don't impose on cosmetics companies. Mm -hmm. You know, that um, they're actually, I think, by imposing limits, and I understand that I'm in dangerous territory here, but by imposing, by imposing limits, we're actually limiting the level of discussion that we can have. I mean, art is supposed to grapple with difficult topics. Mm -hmm. And if we're imposing a limit on, you know, what we can do, I remember there was a show at Yerba Buena where one of the pieces involved stem cells mm -hmm. from all different species that were being sort of lightly undulated back and forth in a warm bath. And so they were actually continually sort of creating hybrid chimerical creatures at the microscopic level. And, um, you know, that, that piece was hugely controversial because you've got a warm bath full of stem cells from all different species inside an art museum. But when you think about it's only because it's not happening behind closed doors, that's what causes the controversy. And so in a lot of ways, an artist can shine a light on things that are problematic or controversial that are happening behind closed doors all the time. Hi there. I have a question originally for Lynn, but anyone can answer. Um, at the end of your discussion, you were talking a lot about um, uh, different channels for communicating to audiences, so Instagram or all these different apps. Um, and a lot of artists or digital artists, I guess as we're calling them, um, that I used to follow uh, were really active in the days of like the early web um, when the web was much more open. And now we see that our attention is more and more on these platforms that are actually closed and controlled by like specific companies and the web is becoming less open. Um, is there anything that you feel can shift or is there a creative limit that you feel as a result of kind of the shift away from the open web or... Um, like an earlier point was made about like uh, backwards compatibility and open source tools um, because it feels like um, the following generations like like post millennial um, are not even really going to websites right they're like on Instagram they're already on a closed platform so in terms of like limits of expression and and all of that um, what what can we do to kind of keep alive the the creativity from that era of the internet, like emerging. Kind of. Well, you know, something things belong to the era that they're that they're made, and you go beyond that. And there are many other ways, you know, that you kind of camouflage your, your um, a, a system of encryption that could have uh, really deeply felt political ramifications. And I think really that's the the job of the artist is to bring those pla those places forwards and make change. Uh, uh, towards, towards, pl uh, planetary, uh, survival and, and with, with the, a, a resonance of ethics. 
And, you know, you find, you find your tools, you find the things or else you invent them. You know, you find something that you have to say and find a way to, to say them. I think to add to yes and <laughs> I think one, and everything that Lynn said. And, but I think one of the other things I wanted to add to that, and I think this is just by virtue of, you know, um, digging into archives, both digital and physical, is that there's this project by Rhizome, which is an organization. I'm not sure how many people are familiar, but if you look at Net Anthology, they look at a lot of these older net art projects and they have this other pro initiative called Web Recorder where it's very similar to the Internet Archive where you can see websites as they were. Um, in their state. But the reason why I bring up a uh, net anthology, for example, is we look at someone like, speaking of Martine Sims, who Lynn brought up earlier, did an excellent essay on, you know, black artists creating on the web. And I remember there's this piece by Keith Obadike, um, another kind of mixed media uh, artist and performance artist based in New York, uh, where he did this piece on eBay called Blackness for Sale. You can't, uh, clearly, you can't sell conceptual work, like literal conceptual or abstract pieces like that anymore because of, you know, regulations and rules that we have. But you can still see that piece in that anthology. And that's kind of an example. And, and they're having up. they're having an exhibition that opens January yes. 29th at the New Museum yeah. of all this work. Right. And Juliana Huxtable as mm -hmm. well. Yeah. Work. You should look up. Totally. Yeah. Please look that up. <laughs> I think just one other thing I'd add is, you know, we focus on digital natives and digital immigrants as if those are the only two categories of people that exist, which implies that we live in an explicitly digital world, when in fact, you know, we're all sitting here. There's not a lot of technology going on in this room right now. We're living in an analog world. And so one thing that I like to think about is the idea of an analog immigrant, you know, and maybe the post-millennial, you know, that people, people can actually make art in physical space using readily available tools and you know maybe that then gets photographed and posted on Instagram or something but there are ways to jam the culture that go beyond mm -hmm. jamming specific platforms or specific channels um, I'm curious about some things that came up during the panel specifically around the idea of trying to get people to invest more in certain types of art. Um, so my perception is that there are some genres of art that are actually seeing a lot of money coming in um, in ways that are interesting, like Meow Wolf, the collective in Santa Fe is like making a lot of money and expanding pretty rapidly. Um, and if you look at something like Burning Man, um, there's starting to be some pretty serious investment in Burning Man art, like even to the point where like people who are sort of veterans of the Burning Man event are like upset that there's so much money coming in um, because it sort of like makes the playing field uneven for a lot of artists who used to be, you know, working on very low budgets. Um, like a lot of them feel like they can't compete with the amount of money that's being invested in some more recent pieces and stuff like that. Um, so I'm curious about how people on the panel think about <clears throat> um, the value of some of those genres that seem to be attracting investment compared to some of the genres that it sounds like you think people are kind of under-investing in. And then I also have a second question, which is separate, which is about whether there are any forms of digital-only art that aren't in museums that you're excited about. 
So some other stuff that I'm, I personally find really exciting is stuff like Twitter bots and Twitter art projects or, you know, websites, stuff like that. Um, and some of the people who make that stuff are, you know, supporting themselves pretty well. I mean, obviously a lot of them aren't, but like some of them are making pretty decent money using platforms like Kickstarter and Patreon and all of that. So I'd be curious about whether any of you are excited about stuff that's like purely in the digital realm and not in museums at all. I mean, I can go. I mean, I guess one of the first people that comes to mind is um, I wrote. I wrote about his collaboration with Kate Durbin and Amaranth Borsuk. Um, and Amaranth actually just came out with a book called The Book. She looks at the history of of, the, of print media, and but her collaborator Ian Hatcher has digital only work that I've always been. Really, I mean, I I mean he's been around for a few years, but I've been following it because there's something so engaging about him being a writer working with computational literature in such a way that's very provocative and kind of reminiscent of concrete poetry. So that's kind of, kind of like an engagement. But to the, to the first part of your question regarding kind of money going in or into these different kind of, um, I guess what Burning Man is, you know, I guess could be considered an organization or institution is that a lot of those artists, I mean, I, one of the artists that used to go to Burning Man when it was still in ocean, on ocean beach. I mean, he just kind of, and he created, his own residency in the Mission District of San Francisco because he saw a need for it, um, uh, you know. And I, I that's kind of an example of how I feel. A lot of people are, uh, I don't want to say uh, on the fringes, but kind of going back to like a like a decentering almost, like saying, well, if this is where all the money is going and investment is going, maybe I can, you know, it, it kind of cycles through yet again, you know. Uh, and I have seen that happen. I mean, it's Burning Man is not the Burning Man that was. And, and that's, but in my mind, that's inevitable. That's also nostalgia when you engage in something and wishing it were to be the same. So I feel like this is something, again, to, to circle back to what Lynn was talking about, to, you know, to create radical new practices for oneself. That's kind of what happens naturally. Um, but yeah, I mean, those are the first few thoughts. I think that, you know, the whole like Burning Man phenomenon is basically it's like the mainstreaming of the counterculture, which mm. happens, you know, in the art world over and over again. You know, when Fovists first started showing their work, there were actual riots. Mm. You know, you have things like, you know, punk as uh, anti-authoritarian mm. form of expression in the 70s and 80s. And then you fa fast forward to today and you've got hot topics in malls. <laughs> You know, I mean, it's just every, the counterculture is always pulsing towards the mainstream and then the new things need to start existing on the fringe. And you know, I think Meow Wolf is actually a sort of best case example of a cultural impulse that manifests itself in different ways through like these selfie museums or Instagram museums, like Museum of Ice Cream or whatever. Um, but the thing about Meow Wolf that's really interesting to me is that um, part of the reason why their model is so successful is that they actually pay their artists. They're also creating a physical experience, and they're creating a physical experience that has value and that has pleasure beyond, you know, it's also highly Instagrammable, but that's not entirely the point. The point is to have the experience, the unique experience. And I think that, you know, this is another, another way of, in some ways, uh, physicalized backlash against the idea of a more virtual experience, you know, that there are things that you can't be a part of unless you're actually physically in the room while it's happening, like this awesome panel. Right here. 
Hi, thank you all so much for being here and for spending so much time with us. Um, Lynn, earlier you mentioned glitches. Uh, glitches and glitch art. Glitches I, are really important. I think they're, I, I've been very so fascinated with them, especially yeah. because in a twofold way, they're primarily being made by and shared among a generation who have actually never really interacted with VHS tapes, um, but are discovering their beauty. So it's happening in a decontextualized way. And it also fundamentally points to an error in technology. And that's what people are holding up. So I'm. Well, they, they think it's an error. Right. But so I, I'm very interested in all of your thoughts on glitch art and that aesthetic and also its sort of mass popularity at the moment. I'm just adding to that. Also, what are glitches for the audience? For a friend. <laughs> Uh, they're mistakes. They're spaces in between. They're perceived, perceived mistakes, right? Uh, something that, that, uh, isn't coded or kind of virgin taper or, or coding comes through when it's not supposed to. But often I find that, that, that these things are telling us something about, uh, that, that they're, they're forcing themselves into our consciousness because they have something to say that we're not paying attention to. Um, so, you know, it's just like I think that failure is just that you're halfway towards success. That nobody ever fails. They continue to find a way towards completion of something. So, uh, you know, glitches shouldn't be discarded. They should really be paid attention to. I think another reason why glitch art is so popular just from a conceptual standpoint is a glitch is that interstitial moment of clarity versus like a darkness. And I think, sorry, that's like, I don't mean to be super philosophical, but I feel like to a, to a large extent, that's the reason why there's a fascination with it. People like to see failure. People like to see the mistakes. I think two examples that come to mind, one of my friends who is a Bay Area-based artist, Chris Carrick, um, he, I mean, he looks at this notion that he coins critical breaking. So basically he breaks systems and then sees how to fix them. And a lot of his work is based on that phenomenon of glitching. And what does glitching tell us about the motion tracking in movies? What does it tell us in video games? How does it tell us how the physics are incorporated in the creation of these renderings that we see in say like AAA games or AAA meaning like, um, big, big budget video games, for example. Um, but the second example that comes up is, um, uh, you know, Nathan Altice, who wrote a book called I Am Error, where he is very niche, but he talks about the glitches that happen with Japanese consoles in translation. Because when we think of glitch, we also think of it as a visual, but glitches can happen translation, like in a trans uh, translational manner as well with language. So I hope that's like cool. <laughs> Any more questions? I say if there's one or two more questions, we'll take them at the same time. And then there's one here. Any any other questions? Okay, great. Excellent. Let's go, Leslie. There's some museums that only do that. Mm -hmm. Well, for instance, the CKM in Karlsruhe, Germany. More more outside. I don't think that there's any in the United States. Uh, in fact, it's it's hard put to find places in the United States that even show this kind of work. But um, particularly in Germany and in Switzerland, and it's starting now in the UK and in Canada, there are museums that are more and more devoted to to um, to the to some some almost exclusively to this kind of work. I mean, trivia fun fact for you is the first time that I was when I was getting into art writing, you know, over a decade ago, I actually wrote about Erica's work. 
and it, it took place at a public storage unit. So it's this notion of, well, you know, to kind of answer your question of like, what is a permutation of an exhibition? And I think people thinking beyond these kind of white wall galleries or even the museum, but that's just more of an elaboration of what, how can something be expanded? How can a different type of architecture serve the patron, the viewer, the participant? So that's just an example. Um, I think the one thing that I'd add to that is I think it's less about, um, like the word you used was delegitimize or legitimize and more about adaptation that, you know, museums have already adapted. You know, most, you know, most contemporary, modern contemporary art museums have some form of, you know, digital media curator at our museum. It's called media arts curator. People who are sort of constantly pushing the boundaries of what the museum can display, but also looking at that sort of backwards compatible mm -hmm. notion of what collecting and displaying digital media actually means. And it's fascinating to see them wrestle with problems like mm -hmm. the monitors that this Namjoon Pike piece was originally displayed on no longer exist. Or you know, even things like the, you know, the, the light bulbs that Dan Flavin used aren't made anymore. You know, what do we do? And um, it's really wonderful to see people grappling with those problems because I think that museums are several things and one of them are, you know, obviously it's to share things with the public, but it is also to collect and conserve things for future display so that 50 years from now somebody could experience Agent Ruby regardless of what the technology is. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's um, it's less a question of legitimation and more a question of evolution. Well, on that, thank all of you for asking phenomenal questions. This, this is not being done on Facebook Live, so only us have, have witnessed this. But thank all of you for being panelists, really. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. If you loved that panel and you want, you can't get enough, we will be releasing it as an episode of the Untitled Art Podcast in 2019. And that was State of the Art. Thank you to State of the Art, Erica, Dorothy, Lynn, and The Battery. And I hope to see you at Untitled Art next week. Good night. We hope you enjoyed this live recording of Viewing Art in the Digital Age. And uh, join us next week when we continue our conversations with the minds behind so-called selfie palaces. Thank you so much. This has been another episode of State of the Art.